On the record flips to the B side. Good morning. I'm Tamara Keith, and you're listening to B Side. From Berkeley's failing parking meters to a language designed to bring on world peace, today's show is well all over the map. We'll take you from the dating scene in San Francisco to a campaign for an independent Khalistan, and many places in between. As on the record flips to the B side. Anyone who's parked in Berkeley has seen them. Meters flashing fail, fail, fail. A recent study found that about 80 percent of these failing meters aren't broken but jammed by vandals. I decided to investigate. I'm driving along, looking for a place to park. Someone pulls out of a space on Bancroft near Dana, and I swoosh in to grab the space. I dig through my purse to find enough change to last a couple of hours. Pop out of the car. Go up to the meter, and the little digital readout is flashing the word "fail," and I'm thinking, "Score, free parking." At least that's what I thought until I met City of Berkeley meter mechanic Michael McKinney. If you were to come across a broken meter like outside of work, would you go, "Yeah, free parking"? Not really, because because I do it, so it's 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 not really that exciting to me as most people be. Oh, free parking, free parking. It's just like、oh, another broken meter. McKinney is one of Berkeley's three meter mechanics. Every day he drives around in a city van looking for broken meters, and he agreed to take me along for the ride. And now we're going into the area that I hate to go in, and it all starts on Durant. Durant Street is right in the middle of McKinney's beat. Around here, it doesn't take much to find a malfunctioning meter. They're everywhere. This street here, <laughs> it's always vandalized. Me and another mechanic, we could come through here in the morning, around nine thirty, get through about quarter eleven, come back after lunch, half of the meters are jammed again. McKinney parks his van on College Avenue, a couple of blocks from the Cal campus, and shows me what has become a daily routine in his life: pulling junk out of the coin slots in Berkeley's parking meters. Using an odd-shaped key, McKinney opens up the meter head. He pulls out the coin slot mechanism and uses a thin metal stick to clear out the slot. And that's what it takes—a little piece of paper like that to jam it up. And it's not just paper. McKinney says he's found some pretty weird stuff jammed in the coin slots: paper clips, bubble gum, candy, epoxy glue. The list just goes on and on. McKinney saves all the paper clips he pulls out of the meters, slipping them into his chest pocket. These I usually collect. You got a whole bunch of them. I got a whole bunch of paper clips. He says paper clips are among the most popular jamming devices. Large ones need only be slipped into the coin slot to make the meter flash fail, while smaller clips have to be unwrapped and twisted. For McKinney, the vandalism is a major inconvenience. He has desk work he should be doing, and meters on some blocks get neglected because the high maintenance areas consume all of his time. But for the city of Berkeley, McKinney's inconvenience is turning into a huge expense. Once a meter is jammed, it can take hours or even days before it can be cleaned out, and that means fewer quarters for city coffers. They put everything else in here but money. 
That's meter money collector Stephen Charles Noriega. We ran into him as he was making his rounds, collecting coins from the meters. He says lately there haven't been that many coins to collect. Actually, it should be a lot louder than that, but since they're being jammed up, there's very seldom hardly any change in there, so you don't really get that change effect dropping into the container. That lack of coin clanking sound worked out to about a half a million dollar loss for the city last year. Meter repairman McKinney says he wishes people would just pay the 75 cents an hour it costs to park and leave him and his meters alone. As for me, I'll probably keep looking for those broken meters. Hey, it's free parking after all. But I might not rejoice quite as much the next time I see a meter flashing fail. For most of us, it's a whole lot easier to break things than to fix them. But there are some people out there who are truly skilled with tools, people who love to tinker. Besides Mia Lobel brings us the story of a father who can fix anything. This was one of the sounds of my childhood. My dad would disappear for hours at a time into the basement. He has a workshop down there hidden away behind piles of old magazines and scrap lumber. The sounds of saws and hammering, fans and power drills, would drift up through the ventilation shafts into my room. A few weeks ago, I decided to relive the memory. I hadn't been home in a while. It was my dad's birthday, and I figured I'd ask what he's been doing down there all these years. He gave me the grand tour. So we're now entering my world. This is where I do my work. This is where I relax, and this is where I fix things. I know most people's dads like to putz around and fix little things around the house, and I don't mean to brag, but my dad takes it to a whole new level. You'll see what I mean. Okay, here we go. We're going downstairs. Half of the basement is finished with drywall and carpeting. It holds my dad's framing studio and darkroom. The other half, cement walls and open ceilings, is crammed with power tools and layered with sawdust. We're now entering another section of my world, which is really my favorite place in the world to be. And that's, that's not a joke. This is my workshop. The shop is filled with every kind of tool you can imagine. He shows me some of his favorites. What we're looking at here is a router table, and a router is a, a wonderful machine that spins a bit at a very high rate of speed, and that bit... I was looking for a quick demo, and, and but what I got was an episode of This Old House, with a twist. Uh, this is an old pair of jockey shorts, which have been converted into a, uh, a rag, essentially. It's not that I'm not interested in hearing about his tools and the things he's fixed around the house. It's just that he's fixed everything, and he really gets into it. And here we go. Isn't that a great sound? Now, believe it or not, that sound, and you smell this? Oh, I love the smell of that wood. Believe it or not, I love that sound. That sound relaxes me. It's kind of hard to describe, but the, the sound of of tools of various types on wood is just very soothing to me. And when I'm down here, I lose all track of time and space, and I'm just totally focused on what I'm doing. 
There's no point in trying to get his attention when he's down here. He says he's been this way his whole life. These talents didn't come completely naturally. He owns the entire Time Life series of home repair books and jokes that he's committed them all to memory. He spends a silly amount of time at Home Depot, and the only thing he watches on TV besides the Food Network is HGTV. That's home and garden television. He worships Norm Abram from the New Yankee Workshop and, of course, Bob Vila from This Old House Classics. He doesn't just watch these guys. He studies them. I'm fortunate to have the kind of mind where once I see it done, I understand how to do it. and I have very good manual dexterity, so it just translates from my eye to my hands. And he has gotten his hands into every room of the house. Going upstairs. Over here, this is one of my early projects. And this is my all-time favorite bowl. you got to feel that. Isn't that smooth? Isn't that beautiful? He's just as proud of the toilet as he is of the pieces of furniture he's made. Don't you just love that sound? Fascinating. I have replaced the interior parts of this Notice how clean they are and how fresh. That is a new toilet mechanism. There is nothing more annoying than a drippy toilet. And he doesn't stop with our house. He fixes things for all the neighbors, too, like Barbara from down the street. He helped me when my basement flooded. He fixed a zipper on my dress the other day. (laughs) He's fixed my clock. He's fixed my toilets. He has fixed everything, you name it. Just your friendly neighborhood repairman. Do you ever feel like you should have a cape and like a little siren that when somebody calls, you rush right over with your, your big S for Steve, of course? You know, this is something that I, I really didn't know when to tell you, but I do have that stuff. I don't want to imagine my dad in a cape and tights, but I have a sinking feeling that he wasn't entirely kidding. The thing I realized, though, is that despite all the joking and the really long descriptions of how things work around the house— What my dad was really showing me was how he works. Working with your hands is wonderful. It stimulates your mind and and I think keeps you young. Feel young? It's your birthday, right? I feel just chipper. (laughs) I feel like a spring chicken. (laughs) Yeah, very young. Yes, I feel young. And getting younger, much to your mother's uh, consternation. There's one more thing you need to know about my dad. He's had about a million different jobs and never finishes a book before starting five others. But the one consistent thing has been his workshop. It's the one thing he always goes back to. And the one thing, I think, that keeps him sane. I'm an adventurous person, so I learn a lot of stuff by doing. And I make a lot of mistakes. But I'm not afraid to make mistakes. So that's... I can't tell you how many times I may have rebuilt things. In fact, that reminds me, we'll have to... Look at my latest weatherproofing uh, venture. Here we go again. For B-Side, I'm Mia Lobel. Some things just don't need to be fixed, hence the phrase, leave well enough alone. B-Side's Claudine Zapp would have been perfectly happy if her stylist had left her hairdo alone, Instead, after a recent trim, the stylist asked if Claudine wanted to blow-dry her hair straight. From that experience, we get this personal essay. You see, I have naturally curly hair. Not frizzy hair, not hair with body, not wavy hair. 
I have curly hair, corkscrew curls, hair that comes out of my head in spirals instead of straight, Shirley Temple hair, Annie hair, Bozo the Clown hair, the kind of hair that, no matter what my age, makes me cute. I'm cute at 12. I'm cute at 30. I'm cute when I'm mad. Still, let me be clear. I embrace my hair. I'm okay with it. At times, I admit I've wanted to trade it in for more glamorous, less fuzzy, straight hair. But I have grown to love my curly top. So I'm in the salon. And my hairstylist asks me if I want to go straight. And I don't even have time to think about it before she says, Come on, it'll be fun. I admit, I was tempted to see what it was like on the other side. The side of Jennifer Aniston, Penelope Cruz, and Angelina Jolie. I wanted in. It was about six in the evening. I was her last client. She had time to kill. So with the sun going down and city lights coming up, I became transformed. The tools for the job? Gel, a hairdryer, and a curling iron, or rather, a straightening iron, and a brush. A half hour later... I had my new do. As I turned toward the mirror, I closed my eyes and held my breath. What if I liked it? What if I felt the need to do this every day? What if I left my curly self behind for good? I opened my eyes to take a look. Staring back was a hideous vision. Instead of my springy curls, I had thin, wispy hair stuck to the side of my face. My hair, not truly having the ability to lie straight fell strangely in unfamiliar, awkward ways around my forehead and ears. Slinking out of the salon, it hit me. Of course I looked terrible in straight hair. There wasn't anything wrong with the look, but the look was wrong for me. Essayist Claudine Zapp went home that night and scrubbed the straight right out of her hair. It's been curly ever since. If you've driven around the East Bay recently, you've probably noticed that a lot of taxis here are plastered with the slogan, Free Khalistan. That's because they're owned and driven by Sikh immigrants who want an independent homeland for followers of the Sikh faith. It's a country that doesn't exist now, but which they call Khalistan. In India, the struggle for Khalistan has all but petered out. But in the United States, and here in the East Bay, this revolutionary movement is alive and well. Lissa Mudd reports. Parmjeet Sekhan's taxis are his soapbox. All five are orange and blue, the colors of the Sikh faith. They have huge stickers across the back windshields that say, India out of Punjab, Khalistan. He sees his taxis as free advertising for his movement. He says all he thinks about now is how to keep the movement going. Day and night, day and night, I 100% support the Khalistan struggle, educate, give the paper, meeting, talking on the Khalistan movement. Give the information, Khalistan, Khalistan, Khalistan. Most Sikhs come from the state of Punjab in northwest India. Khalistan is the name they give to their homeland. Sekhan tries to explain Khalistan's struggle for independence to his passengers. All customers give the paper and uh, explain, um, and try explain, good explain, good explain. He hands out leaflets and gives away books with titles like India Kills the Sikhs. He's got an answer to almost any question. 
If anyone asks whether it's practical to create a teeny landlocked country, he'll list all the countries that are smaller than Khalistan. Albania and uh, Bahamas, Cyprus, Denmark, Belgium, Bermuda, Netherlands. The idea of an independent Khalistan has been around for a long time because Sikhs have long felt underrepresented in India. But the movement for political autonomy really gained momentum in 1984. That was the year Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi ordered an attack on the Golden Temple, the holiest site in Sikhism. A few months later, after she was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards, riots broke out and thousands of Sikhs were killed in vengeance. Then came 12 years of intense violence between the Indian government and Sikh separatists. Though the movement has quieted significantly in India, here in the East Bay it's alive and well. And it's not just exiles and other recent immigrants who brought the cause with them. Some young second-generation college students are just as passionate about Khalistan, even though many of them have never even been to Punjab. There's a lot of different ways I could help the movement. I say that because it's not dead. It might be dead in Punjab, but it's certainly not dead here. Kavaldeep Gardeval is a 22-year-old UC Berkeley student from Fremont. If you believe in something strong enough, you should be willing to lay down your life for it. For now, Kavaldeep says he can make the greatest impact by educating people here in the U.S. But if by some miracle Punjab actually did break free from India, he says he'd be on the first plane there. It would be a sort of homecoming, you know. Uh, (laughs) uh, I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. Taxi owner Parmjeet Sekhan and one of his drivers, Harvinder Singh, are parked across the street from the Ashby BART station in Berkeley. They've taped big pictures of torture victims all over a minivan cab. Harvinder Singh points to one of them. You see this picture? They have no nose, no eyes, nothing. Sekhan and Singh know that driving around with graphic photographs like this on their taxis would be bad for business. But they say these shocking images are an effective way of getting the message across. Sekon tells the story behind a particularly disturbing one. This guy is a very good speaker. 100% follow the religious. Sikh religion, 100% follow, not a terrorist. He says Khalistani activists like this one were often tortured or killed by the Indian police for speaking out. Police give the warning him, you stop, quiet, no speeches against the government, against India. And this guy is no stop. And uh, one time, the Indian police... Breaking into Hindi, Sekon says the police boiled him alive. Sekon pulls up his left pant leg to show a scar just above his knee. He says he was shot twice for writing articles and making pro-Khalistan speeches. His family was tortured. But the United States gave him asylum, and his family escaped. That was in 1989. He's been driving taxis ever since. Sekon says his own fleet of orange and blue taxis were a gift from God. Now he says he's praying for something more. I want America help showing up the globe. He says he wants America to help Punjab become independent so that Khalistan will have a place on the world map. In the meantime, Sekon says he plans to keep the revolution alive here in the East Bay spreading his message every time someone rides in his cab. For B-Side, I'm Lissa Mudd. Nearly 10,000 languages are spoken around the world. Ever since the Tower of Babel, people have seen this diversity as a source of war and hatred. And that's where Esperanto comes in. 
It's a language designed to promote world peace that combines pieces of Spanish, French, Italian, and a few other languages into a single tongue. The only problem is that it never really caught on. Dave Gilson met some local Esperanto speakers who are carrying the torch for this fabricated language. Mi estas Lana. Kiu estas vi? Mi estas Mina. Kiu estas vi? Lana Schaefer and Mina Kim are native Esperanto speakers. Though Lana grew up in Russia and Mina grew up in Southern California, both of their fathers were Esperanto teachers, so their families spoke Esperanto around the house. Lana and Mina are now juniors at UC Berkeley, where they teach an Esperanto class twice a week. Today, they're not just teaching vocab and grammar; they're trying to sell their mother tongue to their students. Mina explains the idea behind Esperanto. You can't be friends with people if you can't talk to them. Esperanto helps break down the language barriers between countries. Esperanto speakers like to brag about how easy it is to learn. They say you can learn it five times faster than French and ten times faster than Chinese or Arabic. Its structure is simple. It's completely phonetic, and best of all, it has no irregular verbs. And its alphabet sounds vaguely familiar. Esperanto was invented more than 100 years ago by a Polish doctor named Ludwig Zamenhof. Zamenhof thought that if everyone spoke a common language, maybe they would stop seeing each other as Poles or Germans or Jews, and start seeing each other as human beings. While Zamenhof's dream of a global lingua franca never came true, his revolutionary language continues to attract new speakers, or Esperantists, as they call themselves. The Bay Area is home to a small but devoted community of Esperantists, like Miko Sloper, a math teacher from Berkeley. Mi nomo estas Miko Sloper. Sloper used to be head of the Esperanto League of North America, based in El Cerrito. Now I'm merely an Esperantist, which means that I speak the language, I use the language, I travel using the language. I have a lot of friends in Esperanto land. Esperanto land is around half a million people in over 100 countries. Most use the language as a way to meet and visit people around the globe. The Esperanto community is sort of like a country in diaspora, so we have people who have a secondary culture in this international culture who live in virtually every country in the world. Like any other culture, Esperanto has its own novels, its own poetry, and its own music. There's even Esperanto hip hop. Esperanto culture has something for everyone. Shortly after Sloper learned Esperanto, he heard that the Oakland Symphony was performing a choral piece in his new language. It's called La Coro Sutro, wonderful piece. So I called up the Oakland Symphony Orchestra guys and I said, "I can sing pretty well and I know Esperanto.、Uh, is there any chance I could come to some of your rehearsals?" They said, "Come to the rehearsals. You join the bass section." And that experience of singing in Esperanto—it really changed my life. Most people who have heard of Esperanto either think it's dead or just some kind of joke. 
Its image hasn't been helped by the 1965 cult film Incubus, which stars a young William Shatner acting, if you can call it that, entirely in Esperanto. For Miko Sloper, the final frontier of Esperanto is China, where he sees millions of potential Esperantists just waiting. And we just have no idea how many people in China have any Esperanto background because the Chinese government back in 90 and 91 ran a 41-part Teach Yourself Esperanto series on Chinese television. Now, people who participated in that, that could have been, what, uh, 500 million people? Who knows? Back in Berkeley, Lana Schaefer and Mina Kim are thinking about the next generation of American Esperanto speakers. The other day we were actually talking about um, teaching our kids Esperanto and how we're going to be able to do it. Yeah. And so um, we were thinking up names <laughs> for we our kids. We want to name them Esperanto, be walking commercials <laughs> for Esperanto. So but. it just shows how much it is a part of our lives. Esperanto will need all the free advertising it can get to beat its real competition, another international language that's revolutionized the way the world communicates, English. But Esperantists have a saying, if you want to make money, learn English. If you want to make friends, learn Esperanto. In Berkeley, mi estás Dave Gilson. Gis Realdo. Quick, tired of the old dating scene? Looking for love in a hurry? Speed dating might just be the answer. Essayist Gavin Tachibana tried it and has this review. Basically, you pay 25 bucks and you meet 10 single women who are about the same age and in the same situation. Very lonely. The way it works is, you all get together in a meeting hall, you sit in a circle, men on the outside, women on the inside, with everyone facing each other. You spend 10 minutes with each person, then the guys rotate. At the end of the night, you check off who you'd like to keep in touch with, and if there's a match, the organizer gives you the other person's phone number. The theory is, by getting to know so many people, you have a better shot at meeting that special someone. What happens is, you get rejected by more women more quickly than you normally would. But that's okay because it's speed dating. You just move on. Anyway, I don't even know if I want to meet that special someone. But I had to give it a try. I'm starting to feel the pressure. Some of my close friends are getting married. And yeah, Mom, I know. Hurry up and find a girlfriend. It's time to settle down. Maybe it would be nice to meet someone to share my life with. On the night I go, it's Asian American night. Because I am Asian American. They also have this for Jews and gays and lesbians. And some nights are for everyone. But the dynamic is the same for the most part. Here we are sitting in a circle. Everyone's got their clipboard ready to take notes. I've got my finest secondhand leather coat on. I thought the sport coat look might be too formal. I've got my name tag on. There's a number written above your name so women can copy it down if they like you and vice versa. My number was A16. The first girl I met seemed kind of nice, kind of shy, had her arms crossed. She works as a physical therapist for elderly people. She wrote out a list of questions beforehand. Do you play any sports? What do you do on the weekend? Are you religious? I asked her, what do you do for fun? And she said she's so busy she has to schedule in her free time so she'll remember to stop working. Okay. The next woman said she works for a pharmaceutical company, preparing the formulas they test on the rats. Ew. Any hobbies, I asked. She said she collects stamps. All right. I did that when I was five. I asked if she had any international stamps. She said no. Now, I'm no big prize either, I know. But I've learned a few things about what not to say on the dating scene. For instance, I don't have a full-time job, even though I have a master's degree now. I just don't want a job. 
but don't ever tell a woman that you do not have a full-time job. You might as well stamp a big L on your forehead. Tell them you're retired, got out just before the dot-com downfall. And don't ask girls the same old questions the previous guy just asked. That's boring. Even the ugly girls hate when that happens. I didn't make any matches that night. Ironically, the only person I keep in touch with is the guy I sat next to, because at least we had something in common. We're going to keep looking for women, playing the speed dating game, on our own terms. Are you good looking? Are you smart? Are you funny? Can you dance? No? You're out of here. Okay, maybe not that speedy, and I shouldn't be so judgmental. But I figure, the more women you meet, the better your chances of finding Miss Wright. Right? For more information about the very eligible Gavin Tachibana and all of the members of the B-Side crew, check out our website at b-side-radio.org. You've been listening to B-Side. This month's show was produced by Claudine Zapp, Mia Lobel, Dave Gilson, and Lissa Mudd. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. I'm the senior producer, Tamara Keith. Thanks for listening, and tune in next month as On the Record flips to the B-Side. Thank <laughs> you.